Let us now turn in our copies of God's Word to the book of Hebrews, the second chapter, Hebrews chapter 2. Even though we will be focused on verses 10 to the end of the chapter, I would like to begin reading at verse 5, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God and Father in heaven, grant that we will have deep reverence and awe as we worship the name of Jehovah, that the very words we speak will bespeak the greatness of our God, the tunes we sing, the words that we sing the prayers that we offer. And now, as we have the privilege of hearing the Word of God, the very Word of God read and expounded, may all be done in reverence and awe with a sense of expectancy that we are in that special way meeting with the living and true God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. We ask that the Father in His love, that the Son in His death and resurrection, that the Holy Spirit in His marvelous application of redemption will be hailed and will be exalted in the preaching of the Word. And may He be enthroned in every heart is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Hebrews chapter 2, begin, we will begin reading at verse 5. This is the Word of God. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely 
It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, at this time of the year, we focus special attention on the coming of Christ into the world. But how much attention do we give to the question, why did he come? Why did he take that journey from heaven to earth? And not to attempt to drain the text dry, let us see four interrelated reasons, answers to the question, why Christmas? Why did the Son of God come on that first Sunday Christian Christmas morning? What answers does the text give us? Well, we want to see four answers to the question, why did he come? And the first thing we see in the text that he came to remove sin. He came to remove sin. Now, you will have noticed how verses 9 and 10 hang together. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." in which we learn that there was no other way for us, for many sons to be brought to glory, but by way of the incarnation of our Lord and His suffering for us in atonement. Part of what is meant by fitting in verse 10 is that God is true to His own nature and purpose. There are three views that sometimes have been held about the atonement of Jesus Christ, His death upon the cross. Three views. One view is that God must send His Son to die for sinners. That it was an absolute necessity. But no, that certainly is not correct. In absolute freedom, God sent His Son. And in absolute freedom, Jesus came and the Father sent Him. The second viewpoint, God could have forgiven sin without the cross. That out of a sheer word of sovereignty, He simply could have forgiven. But no, This does not do justice to his sovereignty, does not do justice to his divine attributes. As James Henley Thornwell put it, God's will is determined by the perfections of his nature. Then there is the true viewpoint. And it's a marvelous truth to consider that God did not have to forgive us. He did not have to forgive you and me our awful sins and iniquity. But having determined that he would do so, there is only one way in which he could do it, and that was the sending of his own son in the sinner's place, in the sinner's nature, incarnation and atonement. God cannot receive sinners without satisfaction to his justice. And this he did through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the great presupposition of this entire passage is the presupposition that God cannot overlook sin. 
If a less costly sacrifice would have served the purpose, that route would have been taken. But Christ must be a propitiation through His blood. God must pour out upon Him in the place of His people the boiling mud showers of His own wrath against our sin and guilt and iniquity. And God, in order to be the justifier of the ungodly, His justice must be satisfied. And so only in this way could He forgive. Only in this way could He pardon us of our sins. Only in this way could He declare us to be righteous, though we were ungodly sinners. And so against the view that God must do this, we must stress the divine freedom. God did not have to send His Son. Does it not fill your heart with amazement and with joy, with a sense of wonder at the grace of it all, that when we celebrate Christmas, God did not have to do this, but He did it out of His great love for us. That the Father freely loved us, the Son willingly came, and the Holy Spirit lovingly applies. God did not have to do any of it, but He does this in sovereign freedom to save us. Against the second view that God could forgive in some other way, perish the thought. There was no other way consistent with God's holiness but the shedding of the blood of the incarnate Son of God. No, but rather Jesus came to remove sin by the once for all and completed sacrifice of Himself. And there was no other way and there was no other than the infinite, eternal second person of the Trinity who could have come and done this great thing for us. Now children, I'm talking to the boys and girls who are here this morning. You think at this time of the year of the little infant that is born in Bethlehem, the Virgin Mary, and so you should. But do you see why he was born? Do you understand the eternal God became man without ceasing to be God so that he might obey the law that we have broken and so that he might pay the penalty of our sins by shedding his blood on the cross. That he must be fully human without sin to pay the penalty for fallen mankind. That he must be God. That his sacrifice have infinite value that had weighed us down because of the infinite debt that must be removed. And the greatness of that debt, he must come to pay it. That little baby, boys and girls, was God in the flesh. And that is what incarnation means. Incarnation means enfleshment. He came, God himself came in our flesh to achieve this great work of atonement. And you sing it every year. You sing as we did in our opening hymn. All praise to Thee, eternal Lord, clothed in a garb of flesh and blood, choosing a manger for Thy throne, while worlds on worlds are Thine alone. Or what do you hear, children, when you sing every year, O come all ye faithful, every year you sing, God of God, light of light, lo, He abhors not the virgin's womb, very God begotten, not created. Now, there's much theology in that one line for you to grow into over time, but the point is clear. 
God became man, born of the virgin. Or when you sing, what child is this? Why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian fear for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. And so in learning these great hymns of the faith, every year you are singing the profound and rich theology of the Bible and even of the text that we have read this morning. Parents, let me say something to you. The Lord is worthy of the most exalted language that we are capable of giving and bringing. Our pedestrian age is not capable, capable of producing a steady stream of the hymns of the old quality. Is it too much for a child to learn that mean estate means humble? Too much to learn that hail means greet or welcome? In this rootless world, do you not think that the covenant theology to which we hold calls upon us to pass to our children the best that our fathers and mothers have given to us, especially in the hymnody of the church? And I add especially the psalms and the metrical psalms for singing. I was asked many years ago the meaning of certain words and let all mortal flesh keep silence. And I remember that when I was a child, I asked my teacher the meaning of those words when I was very, very small. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. We sing it here every year. And I recall going up to the teacher, I did not understand many of the words and he helped me to understand what some of them meant. Well, other sorts of songs would not have brought the prolonged meditation or the sense of awe and the sense of wonder that those sorts of words brought. But only high, exalted language could do that. Language befitting the theme. The first thing we learn from this text is that this baby of whom we sing in our Christmas hymns, found according to this text, must suffer in order that he might bring many sons to glory. He came also not only to remove sin, to justify sinners through the incarnation and atonement, and I want to ask, do you know that Christ as your Redeemer and your Savior? Are you pardoned of your sin? Has your guilt been removed? Have you trusted in Christ alone to be your Redeemer and your Savior? But also, secondly, according to this text, he came to identify with us. In verse 11 we read, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So here we have two natures, one person. Children, not two persons, not one nature, but two natures, one person. God and man. Two natures perfectly united when Christ came into this world in one person. That's hard to understand, you might say, Pastor. Yes, it is hard to understand because it is the miracle of miracles. But without this miracle, you, we, could not be saved. His true manhood is stressed in the text in verse 11 where it says that they all have one origin. Exenos is the Greek. It means of one. 
It means that he shared in our common humanity. In verse 10, he is the pioneer of their salvation, perfected through sufferings. And that means that his truly human sufferings brought him to the goal for which he became incarnate. He had to face death. He must grapple with death. He must go through death. He must defeat death. This is the perfection of his work. And in verses 14 through 17, we see references to his humanity. For example, in verse 14, look, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Or in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is his humanity. And so God became man in true and perfect humanity. He was the forerunner. He was the pioneer. He was the pathfinder that has led us on through that blood-sprinkled way into the very heaven of heavens that we might have fellowship with God the Father. Never forget that Christ's human nature is as real as His deity. That He wears our human nature now glorified on the throne in heaven. That He came as a man. He obeyed the law that you and I broke as a man. That He went to the cross and suffered and bled and died as a man. That His body, His human body was put into a tomb. That that human body was raised from the tomb. That He ascended on high in His humanity that He intercedes for us in heaven in His humanity, that He will come again in His humanity. And so He remains forever the God-man, two distinct natures and one person forever as your high priest. And as our priest, verse 12, quotes from Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And so our Savior sings in the midst of his redeemed children. Leading even this service of worship this morning, the Savior was singing. And he was granted a numerous posterity through his death. And he now leads our praises and acknowledges us to be his brethren before God. That is, sharing your own flesh and blood. Acknowledging us to be brethren before God. Because he so identifies with you in your need. Children, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Do you want to go to heaven Jesus was born to die that believers in Him might live. And God became man in order that He might die for us without ceasing to be God, that He might redeem us from our iniquities. So He came to identify with us. But then thirdly, according to the text, this one who came to forgive us our sins through the cross... This one who came to identify with us in our need also, thirdly, came to destroy death. And so we read in verses 14 through 16. Let's read them. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in order to destroy death and its power. And this required, according to verse 14, his manhood. Sin happened, the fall happened in human nature. Adam, the representative of the race, rebelled against God, and we fell with him and sinned with him in his first transgression. The whole human race fell in Adam, in a man. One of the church fathers rightly said, we should not be able to make use of the conqueror's victory if it had not been won, if it had been won outside our nature. He did not take on himself the nature of angels, but specifically the text says the nature of Abraham. Why Abraham? Why does it stress Abraham? Because he came for the heirs of salvation. Now the devil's hold on us was a hold that he held upon us by the fear of death. The death of Christ defeated the devil. How? By paying the debt in full, Jesus removed the ground of the devil's accusation. And in this way, the Savior delivered us from the fear of death, verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Lifelong slavery. Because every man born into this world has within his heart as a fallen creature because of original sin and because of actual sin, a fear to die. If he allows himself to contemplate death, he will know fear within his heart. And then to consider as well that there not only is physical death, but also spiritual death. The judgment written on every heart, every time that our consciences are aroused, it is the spy within pointing to the rightness of the judgment that is to come. And so we fear death. But Christ's death and resurrection removed the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And so the cradle, the cross, and the empty tomb are all one salvation wrought by the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so, children, Christmas leads to Good Friday, which leads to Easter, which leads to Ascension, which leads to Pentecost, death destroyed, and life begun. The death that Jesus died for us, you see, death is the fiendish power of the devil. This is how he holds his own in captivity. He could accuse us before coming to Christ by saying, death to you, you know you've earned it, you know you deserve it. And he could do that with justice. Yes, we did deserve death. But do you trust in Christ Jesus the Lord? Was he born for you? Did he live for you? Did he die for you? Did he rise from the dead for you? What, do you still fear death? There's no need. Satan's accusations, one and all, have been answered by Jesus Christ's 
the God-man. All that is why Jesus came, in order that he might remove this fear of death by which we were held and with which the evil one accused us. There was a German pastor who wrote a work, I've only seen a reference to the work, by Adolf Saffer. And the German pastor wrote the title of the book, I Feel As If It Was Good Friday. The point, that our aim should be to behold constantly Christ crucified for us and in our place. That our aim should be to constantly view Christ the atoner for sin. So that when Satan comes and says, you sinner, because of your guilt, you deserve to die. Look, look to the one who died for you. Look to the one who obeyed the law for you, who paid the penalty for you. Look to the one who shed his blood for you. Look to the one who rose from the dead for you. Look for the one who ascended on high for you. Look for the one who now sits as the God-man, yes, in your human nature, the God-man sitting upon the throne, interceding for you, believer in Christ. Satan has lost his right to condemn. Jesus was condemned in our place for us, believer. And so in verse 18, we read this word, help. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that word help means to take hold of. It means to help. It means to aid. In Matthew 15, verse 25, the woman from Tyre seeking help from her daughter. Lord, help me. In Acts 16, 19, the man from Macedonia, come over and help us. The very same word. And so this is why we need not fear death. And he comes to our aid with the help that we need when we are tempted and tried and accused by the evil one. The Lord is our helper, our sustainer, our comforter. He has you. He has purchased you. He has taken responsibility for you, believer. He was born for you. He was obedient in life for you. He was crucified for you. He was raised for you. He will come again for you. Do not fear death. Your Savior has preceded you right into the devil's lair. And so what about you? Fear and guilt go together. The only reason that the evil one could accuse us was because of our guilt before God's holiness. Do you know Christ as the one through whose righteousness sinners are justified and guilt is removed and with it the fear of death? Will you be able to sing this Christmas season with a a hearty voice and a heart full of faith? Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save. Called you one and calls you all to gain His everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. In a sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 2, one of the verses there, Stephen Carnock, the 17th century Presbyterian divine, 
said, The devil's power is erected upon our crimes, whereby he becomes the minister of divine vengeance. But a crucified Christ hath bruised the head of this old serpent and wounded the prince of this world. He hath displaced him from his power, snatched from him the ground of his indictments by canceling the law upon which his accusations are founded, and despoiled him of his office by satisfying divine justice, which conferred an authority upon him of executing divine vengeance. The accuser of the brethren is cast out and destroyed him that hath the power of death and that through his own death. Praise God. He came to destroy death for those of us who deserved it. But then there's a fourth thing, a fourth answer to the reason why he came in this text. He came to be our priest. Verses 17 and 18. Will you look at it? Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And the point of the text is simple, but profound, that in his human nature, Christ suffered for you, and in doing so, he qualified for his eternal priesthood. His real manhood was required to make propitiation for our sins, to bear the wrath of God in our place, and that he might be the great high priest of his people. Do you remember that Aaron once per year went into the most holy place and he presented blood, the blood of atonement? But the bloods of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, we read in Hebrews 10.4. Christ reconciles us through his own blood as a greater priest than Aaron could ever have imagined being. And there was only one qualified. How could you approach the blazing glory of the holiness of God without your high priest who shed his blood and made propitiation for your sins? All the fury of God's wrath was poured out upon him so that you can now enter into the presence of God and fellowship with the Father and that he might provide help for the tempted. Christ's victory over every single temptation, as we read in chapter 4, 14 and following, his fellowship in our human sufferings enables him to identify with you, Christian, in your moral struggles. He was fully man, yet without sin. And so he brings a twofold help. He brings the help we need of forgiveness for our sins. And he brings also the power to learn how to overcome sin within the Christian's heart. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Merciful and faithful high priest. 
He wears your very nature on the throne. And He always will forever and ever. His true humanity is as real as His deity. He came as a man, intercedes for you in the flesh, and you may confidently entrust yourself to Him. He is God. He is man. Two natures and one person forever. He came to care for His relations. And that is why He suffered. And this is the ground of your confidence. And He knows how to send the right grace to you at just the right time. Don't attempt to blend Christ's righteousness with your own. There is only one through whom you can be accepted. The God-man who propitiated God's wrath and who is the believer's divine but also human intercessor. Why did He come? Why Christmas? The Bible gives us many reasons for His coming. But within this text, we see these four very fundamental reasons that the Son of God became man. That the baby was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He came to remove sin. He came to identify with us. He came to utterly destroy death and the work of the devil. And He came to be, believer, He came to be your high priest forever. And so do not sever the birth from the entire plan of salvation. The virgin-born Savior who came was incarnate to live in obedience to the law of God, to die in the place of sinners, to rise from the dead, to ascend, to be our priest, and yes, to come again in glory. You know, at the end of his magisterial book, The Virgin Birth of Christ, Jake Russell Machen points out the fundamental tenet of modern religion is that man can save himself. Give us the moral and spiritual values of the Christian religion, the teaching and example of Jesus. That's all we need. We needn't bother with what did or did not happen so long as we find God in the depths of our souls. That's the modern preacher. But I'm afraid things haven't changed much since Machen and his very scholarly fashion battled against those viewpoints. But listen, said Machen, the writers of the Gospels were not intending to write inspiring ideas that somehow were divorced from history. No, they were writing facts. They were writing an account of things that really took place, things that really happened in the real world of history. They were writing facts, gospel, good news. Now, it's that good news that we have proclaimed today. The incarnation and virgin birth are a part of the whole plan of salvation that constitutes good news. So let us never sentimentalize Christmas. Christmas is about sin and God's broken law and about guilt and about death and about blood and gore and a cross. It's about all of those things that were required 
to redeem you and me from our hell-deserved guilt and sin. Do you know Him? There is no hope without Him. You cannot remove your own sin. Jesus only can do that. You cannot understand anything of your human nature and how to glorify God in it. Jesus, only who came, could identify with us in that need. You cannot destroy death. It's too powerful for you. Jesus destroyed death. And you cannot be your own priest in the courts of God. You need one who takes his own perfect blood and righteousness before the Father and holds it up and intercedes for his people before his righteous throne. Do you know him? There is no hope without him. And I dread to hear of someone's death here if you have not trusted in Christ and call upon you even on this morning to bow before him as a criminal against the law of God, to abandon your self-sufficiency and any hope that you have that somehow you can be saved or redeemed in some other way or by some other method or some other means. Surely you know that if Christianity is anything, it is everything. And it is. Because Christ is everything. And worthy of our praise. And worthy of our lives. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ that comes to us this Christmas season is a gospel that will not allow you to sit on the fence. You know Him or you don't. You're assured in Him or you're not. You're facing death on your own and hell or through Christ who conquered death. When you die, your body will be put to to bed in the earth. Your soul will go to heaven and at the resurrection, body and soul will be reunited in that glorious day when you have glorified bodies in Christ. But you cannot sit on the fence. It is one or the other. You're a believer or an unbeliever. You know Him or you don't. You trust Him or you don't. What is true of you on this Christmas season? Don't sentimentalize Christmas. See the call to the only Redeemer of God's elect, the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Christ by faith, and He has promised to receive any and every sinner who comes to Him, not with works in your hands, but who comes to Him empty-handed and receives Him by faith. Amen and amen.